1: with dr frank turek welcome to the first show of 2024 ladies and gentlemen as promised we are going to discover the history of modern israel how did it begin was there a state of palestine before 1948 who has a claim to the land what is the origin of hamas of the plo of the muslim brotherhood How did the discovery of oil rise or fuel the rise of anti-Semitism? How many Palestinians were forced out of their homes in 1948 when the modern state of Israel was born? Uh, Why is every land for, for peace deal rejected? And is this dispute really about land? Should Christians blindly support Israel? Why is the Biden administration negotiating with Iran? What options does Israel have in dealing with Hamas? We hope to address all those issues, if not on this program, on the Midweek Podcast, which we will continue uh, coming this coming Tuesday, but we're going to get through as much as we can today with the great Bill Federer. Bill is just an amazing historian and... As you know, AmericanMinute.com is his website. And before we dive into the modern state of Israel, let me just briefly go over the history of ancient Israel right from the Bible, which has been verified in many ways by archaeology. Let's just talk about the fact that Abraham was promised the land of About 2000 B.C. And by the way, we have archaeological evidence that Joshua was in the land by about 1406 B.C. Because what you read about in the book of Joshua with regard to Jericho could only have been written down by an eyewitness because when we did the archaeology over the past century or so in Jericho, we found that the walls fell just as the Bible says they did. Only an eyewitness would have known that. Then, of course, you have the kingdom of Israel coming into existence sometime around 1000 BC or so. You have the Assyrians destroying the northern kingdom in 722. You have the Babylonians destroying the southern kingdom in 586 BC. You've got the return of the exiles back to the land in 515 BC. You've got the Roman Empire taking over. You've got, of course, uh, the uh, the city and the temple being destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. You have a Bar Kokhba revolt in, in one 35 AD so that's sort of the history of the ancient state of Israel and the Jews did not have a state again until 1948 now let me bring in the real expert here and that is the great Bill Federer Bill let me start out with the question about Palestine what what is the is there such a country has there ever been a country uh, called Palestine where did the name even come from
0: Uh, Well, the uh, Jews were captive in Babylon, and Cyrus of Persia let them come back, and they rebuilt the temple, and then Alexander the Great conquers, and he conquers Persia, and his empire is divided into four, and the Seleucid kingdom is what is Persia, but it controls the Middle East and it controls Jerusalem. And uh, around 130, 165 BC, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, a, um, a Seleucid king, decides to wipe out the Jewish faith uh, and uh, has the Maccabees or the Jews that fight back and they drive the um uh, the Assyrians out. And then you have about two centuries where Israel is an independent kingdom again. And uh, Greece is uh, going on there, but, um, and then Rome is, is growing, but um, the Holy land gets to be its own kingdom. It's called the Hasmonean kingdom. And it's, it's a quite fascinating period of time um, in getting into the theology when the Jews came back from Babylon, you had Ezra the priest, and he taught the law. And from that time on, the Jews never went back to idolatry, and the students of the law were called Pharisees. And uh, they, uh, out of the entire planet Earth, they taught the truth of how God wanted to be worshipped the closest. And Then you had when the Greeks took over Alexander the Great, they brought in their Greek culture, which was naked statues, gymnasiums. The word gym is Greek for naked. A gymnasium was where a bunch of naked men and their bathhouses, they actually had slaves under the floor that would stoke the fires to keep the jacuzzis bubbling. and, and, And so with the Greeks controlling the area, you had a political group that wanted to butter up to the ruling Greeks. They were called Sadducees. And the Sadducees looked at the Pharisees as um, believing in superstitions and so forth. And so they thought it was more... Uh, intellectual to believe the Greek stuff. And, and so here you have the Sadducees controlled Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, and they were buttering up to the Greeks. The Pharisees lived out in the country, and they had synagogues. The word synagogue means meeting place, and every town had a meeting place. And that's where the rabbis would teach the law after the tradition of Ezra. And so you began to have this uh, controversy erupting. And uh, I could get into the details of it, but long and short, it broke into a civil war. They literally killed thousands of each other. Meanwhile, you have Pompey, who is the Roman general during the Roman Republic period. And so uh, Pompey is conquering in Armenia up near Cappadocia by the Black Sea. And word comes to him that there's a civil war going on in Israel. And Pompey says, perfect time to invade, right? This is sort of a, con- a concept of divide and conquer that was perfected by the socialists and even turned into critical race theory today, where you break a population into groups and you pit them against each other, weakens the nation so they can be conquered. Um, and so uh, Pompey comes into uh, Israel and you have the uh, Pharisees helping him because they want to take back the Temple Mount and the Sadducees control the Temple Mount and there is a war and they uh, Pompey breaks through and gets control of the Temple Mount and lots of the Sadducees are killed and Pompey goes into the Temple and sees its glory and turns around and tells his men, don't touch this place. And so the Jews really liked Pompey. But from that po- point on, Uh, Rome began to view uh, Israel as a province and no longer an independent nation. And so you had uh, the triumvirate, which were three Roman leaders. Pompey was one. He wanted to preserve the Republic. Crassus was the second. He was the richest guy in Rome. And then Julius Caesar was the third. Crassus dies in 53 BC, turns into a tug-of-war in Rome between Pompey and Julius Caesar. And um, as Julius Caesar is fighting uh, in Egypt and uh, uh, he's surrounded and coming to his rescue is Herod the Great's dad. And uh, on the way back, he's an uh, Edomite, a son of Esau, and he uh, goes to Julius Caesar and says, "Hey, since I sort of rescued you in there in Egypt, how about making me governor of all of Israel?" And Caesar says, "Fine, you're it." And uh, and so then Caesar goes back to Rome. And then you had Herod the Great take over, and he loved Greek stuff. He actually rebuilt a temple uh, to Zeus, and he started the Olympics. When the Romans conquered Greece, the Olympics ended, right? I mean, they were conquered. They didn't have extra money for, for races, but it was Herod the Great that restarted the Olympics. And then Herod the Great began building the temple in Jerusalem, uh, redoing the second temple and making it uh, very beautiful. And, but he also built uh, uh, another temple to, to Caesar and he named the area Caesarea after Caesar. And, and Herod was, uh, uh, he murdered a bunch of his own sons, murdered some of his wives, he was really terrible. Hold the
1: thought, Bill. We're going to come back, and we're going to get to the origin of Palestine. We're almost there. We're going through the first century right now, and we're going to get to modern-day Israel here shortly. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turk, back in two minutes. What is the origin of modern-day Israel? You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turk on the American Family Radio Network. My guest today is the great Bill Federer. We're giving an overview of the background. We were just talking about ancient Israel and then Israel into the modern, or I should say, into uh, the Roman period, right around the time of Jesus. And we're about to discover where this term Palestine came from. And then we'll fast forward into the modern state here in just a few minutes. So let me go back to my guest, Bill Federer. Bill, you were just talking about Caesar and Herod and Herod building the temple. Pick it up right where you left off. So...
0: Uh Herod dies uh, around anywhere from 4 B.C. to 1 B.C., and that's when Jesus is born. And the three wise men come, and uh, Herod uh, finds out that they saw the star of the king, and Herod doesn't want another king. And so Herod kills all the babies in Bethlehem. But Herod was terrible. He ordered, like, all of his administration to be killed when he died and he, he built the great Masada, that uh, desert palace. And, uh, but he, everybody hated him so much that they were all going to cheer when he died. And so he ordered all of his leaders to be murdered upon his own death. And of course they didn't carry out the order, but they were happy that Herod died. Um, and so you have, um, uh, this area, uh, is now a Roman province and uh, the christians and the jews were sort of one and the same uh you have uh nero wanting to uh, build a big building project in rome uh and he built a colossus statue after the statue of rhodes the big uh bronze statue with two legs that went on either side of the way to get into the harbor so mm-hmm. ships had to sail under the legs and so he built a statue called the Colossus in Rome, which was modeled after Nero. Um, But then next to it, he built a Colossus building and it was called the Colosseum. Mm -hmm. And uh, his statue fell over uh, after his death. And so they, it's gone, but the Colosseum survived. Uh, And so, but Nero, uh he wanted to do this building project and there there was this dumpy area of rome but it was filled full of christians and so a fire started and uh supposedly he played his fiddle while rome burned um and uh most historians think that he was behind the fire because he immediately began building afterwards and but blame the christians so, so this was the beginning of the persecution of christians and um And again, they were still associated with the Jews uh, for uh, about a century. And then they began to realize Christians and Jews were different. But from the Roman perspective, they were sort of the same. Um, And so then you had uh, Titus, the Roman general in 70 uh, A.D., and he's the one who uh, conquers Jerusalem and Supposedly, he told his men, don't touch the temple. But somebody threw a torch in there and the thing burned down. And, uh, but the treasures were taken from. The, the temple in Jerusalem and all the gold supposedly the gold dripped between the stones. And so they, they pried up all the stones so they could get to the gold. Mm-hmm. And of course, Jesus said, oh, when those disciples said, look at all these beautiful buildings, he goes not one stone's going to be left upon another. Um, so they, uh, they took all that to Rome, all, all that wealth. And then Uh, Lots of Jews were killed uh, during the conquest of uh, Jerusalem, and then uh, like a million of them were taken to the games. And you're like, what are the games? Those were like big celebrations where they would kill people. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They like killed lots of them. And um, so uh, Jerusalem, the Holy Land had been subdued, but you had um, by 135 A.D. uh, a guy named Bar Kokhba, and he was a descendant of David, and he evidently was uh, somebody that uh, got a following going, and he had an army of like 400,000 people, and the Rome Hadrian was the emperor. We know Hadrian because he built Hadrian's wall. Um, You know, he had his little sodomite lover guy, and then he like drowned in the Nile, and then Hadrian became sort of mean after that. Um, and, uh, but Hadrian decided that he, Rome wasn't going to expand anymore, and so he built a wall around it. And so, in between England and Scotland, you have Hadrian's wall or the ruins of it that are still there. And, um, but Hadrian um, uh, went to Jerusalem, and he uh, built a temple to Jupiter on the Temple Mount, And he renamed the city after himself. So his his emperor name is Hadrian, but his family name was Aeolia. And so they called it Capitolina Aeolia after Hadrian, and um, he banned circumcision, considered that was a, 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 a barbaric practice because the the Romans and all their bathhouses and all the rest of it I won't get into. Um, and so uh, so they killed the Jews. And then Bar Kokhba began this revolt and they sent over a legion and the Bar Kokhba army wiped out the entire Roman legion. He sent over another legion and that entire legion was wiped out. And so Hadrian is all of a sudden like, okay, he sends over 12 legions and he uh, decides that the source of this rebellion in his province of Judea is their religion. And so he hunts down every descendant of David he could find and kills him. So there could never be another Messiah that they could look forward to. He uh, destroys all the scriptures he could find. He destroys. And then they go literally town by town, wiping out everybody in the town, killing everybody they can. And, and it goes on for four years. Uh, l- hundreds of thousands uh, are killed. And um, he decides that uh, to complete in the erasure of the jewish people that he's going to rename the whole area syria palestina and that's the beginning of the use of the word palestine prior to that all the roman maps they called it Judea.
1: so this is about 135 a.d now we first hear of this area now called palestine and it's named by an enemy of the Jews, Emperor Hadrian from Rome. He's a Roman emperor. And so that's where we get this term. There was never a country known as Palestine, correct?
0: Uh, correct. Uh, there, When the children of Israel went into the promised land, there were Philistines. And that mm-hmm. was the closest that you could come to, you know, a nation or a kingdom. But that um, was not considered a... Um, uh, a, a nation. It was just basically where Gaza is today. Um, mm. And so, uh so yeah, that's where the name Syria, Palestina came from and it was used on maps and uh, the Romans forbade Jews from coming within sight of Jerusalem. Mm. And so if they did, they were immediately killed. Um, later when the Christians took over, the Jews were allowed to come once a year and that was the ninth of Av. That was the anniversary of the date that the temple was destroyed, and they would go to the Wailing Walls. And um, but um, and then you had uh, Constantine in three eleven. Uh, but by the way, you trace these emperors. So um, one thirty five A.D. was when Hadrian. Uh, destroyed uh, Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Well, he comes back and um, he ends up uh, drinking himself to death uh, in 138 mm-hmm. AD uh, and dies of a heart attack. And and I mean, these emperors, they had their, their departments of pleasure and they would gather mm-hmm. up all the little uh, boys and they would have their pleasure yachts and, and it was like Epstein Island. Uh, the Tiberius Caesar, I mean, all these people were just so reprobate, uh, morally. And, um, and so they didn't like, uh, Jews and Christians who had morals. You see mm-hmm. of that today. Um, so, uh, so Constantine, uh, 313 AD becomes the emperor. And, uh, it, it's a co- interesting period, um, so so 70 A.D., after uh, Jerusalem was destroyed, you come back, and what happens? Mount Vesuvius goes off, and uh, you have this huge pleasure city, this Las Vegas, called Pompeii.
1: Uh, in 79 A.D., uh, it erupts, right? Correct. So, correct. Yeah, nine years after they take out the city of Jerusalem in Pompeii. Have- yeah, that Man, Vesuvius erupts, all right, go ahead. Continue. And they
0: have plagues and then they're killed. And it, I mean, it, um, but, uh, and so the, the, there's 10 major persecutions in the first three centuries of Christianity. Christians have to go to church in catacombs, which are caves they just carved out of the rock. And uh, I went to school in Rome and in college and, uh, we actually toured the catacombs and you'd have to, like, you know, go outside of Rome, there's a little hill and there's like a little iron gate, like a drainage ditch almost, and the tour guide like opens it and it creaks and you gotta get squat down to like, you know, four feet high and you gotta scooch back like 30 yards and you get into this little opening that's like you know, 20 by 20 with first century Christian graffiti on the walls and candle marks and little passageways that go off into the dark. And and that was the Christian experience for three centuries. Every single time you got together for church, you were risking your lives. And every now and then somebody snitched and the Roman soldiers would catch you and drag you into the Colosseums and they would throw you to the lions. And so little kids and sheepskin and let the lion drip them apart. I mean, just unimaginable uh, horrors. And, um, But anyway, the Christians pray, and you have uh, an emperor, Diocletian, and he had the the worst persecution. Uh, He actually lost some battles with Persia. Rome and Persia were in war for like a thousand years. And uh, and so even after Rome became Christian, it was still having wars with Persia. But before it was Christian, a Diocletian loses some battles, asks his generals why they said you've neglected the Roman gods. Diocletian orders his military to return to worshiping the Roman gods. Well, by this time, this is the third century A.D. There's lots of Christians in the military because the previous emperor, I think his name was Galerius. Uh, he had been a little lax. And so these Christians could not. Returned to worshiping the Roman gods, so they were purged from the military. Could you imagine purging the Christians from the military? What well, ever
1: happened, Bill? Come on.
0: <laughs> once all the Christians were out of the military, Diocletian decided to use the military to force the entire Roman Empire to return to worshiping the Roman gods, and starts this persecution that goes on for a decade. They went province by province, systematically raiding churches, raiding pastors, uh, tearing down the buildings, uh, confiscating scriptures, cutting out their tongues boiling them alive. I mean, it it was just horrible. And so um, uh, finally, uh, the Christians are praying, and on May 1st, 305 AD, Diocletian is struck with a painful intestinal disease, and he abdicates the throne, which is sort of humorous, because by this time, the Roman emperors had been declaring themselves a god, and sprinkling gold dust in their hair, and demanding that their image be worshipped. So this was like a god resigning. uh, the next step we're Lightning is continues the persecution. Finally, Constantine stops the persecution.
1: All right. Stand by friends. When we come back, we're gonna fast forward about seven hundred years and go to modern day Israel. We got a good background now. You're listening. To I don't have enough faith to be an atheist with me. Frank Turk on the American Family Radio Network. We're back in just two minutes. What is the history of modern-day Israel? How did we get to where we are today? We're going at 10,000 feet over ancient Israel. We just did that with the great Bill Federer. We got up to Constantine, but we're going to jump ahead now into the late 19th century and talk more. And before I go back to Bill, don't forget, we've got two great online courses starting next week. One is why I still don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I'll be your instructor for that. And the other is Let's Get Real, the great Shanda Fulbright, with a little help from me. That's the class that's going to cover the 6th to 8th grade group, maybe 5th to ninth grade group. So if you have a someone in that class age group that wants to learn why christianity is true and how to defend it take let's get real go to crossexamine.org click on online courses you will see it there let's start 2024 right okay islam comes along in the 7th century a.d ladies and gentlemen most of you know that the 600s uh, a.d Uh, we're going to jump over that and we're going to get to about the late 19th century Uh, to talk about how the modern-day Israel came into existence. Uh, The area was ruled by the Ottomans for about 400 years, from about 1517 to about 1917, just about the end of World War I. And then the Brits took over. But Bill, we're talking to Bill Federer. Bill, in the late 1800s, uh, anti-Semitism was on the rise Uh, How did it come to fruition that a group of people said, we've got to get the Jews a homeland in what was ancient Israel? How did this begin?
0: So, you had a second great awakening revival that took place in America and then spread to Britain. And then you had millennialists. And these were people that finally discovered in the Bible where it says Jesus will come back and rule and reign for a thousand years. And they saw that the Jews had to be in Jerusalem for these prophecies to be fulfilled. And so, you actually had Christians going to synagogues telling the Jews they needed to start thinking about going back to Israel. Um, one of the interesting uh, uh, books is uh, Jeffrey Alderman. He wrote in the Jewish Chronicle, uh, and he talks about the Balfour Declaration grew out of religious sentiment. Arthur Balfour was a Christian mystic who believed that the Almighty had um, uh, chosen him to be an instrument of divine will, the purpose of which was to restore the Jews to their homeland, perhaps as a precursor to the second coming of the Messiah.
1: Now, the the Balfour Declaration, for those who don't know, uh, Bill, give us an overview of that. That's from 1917. The Brits put that out. What did that say?
0: Right. So beginning with the Second Great Awakening Revival, you have almost a century— of Christians going to the Jews, telling them to think about going back. Then you have Theodore Herzl, and he starts the first Zionist Congress. Um, You have Lincoln meeting with Zionists. You you have Canadian Zionists. You have prominent people in America supporting this. And so on their own, uh, Jews are buying land and setting up little bitty farming communities over in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, As you mentioned, um, you had uh, Islam comes along and conquers the Holy Land, um, and then you have the, the the Crusades trying to take it back. And then you have the Selju Turks and the Ottoman Turks. Um, but toward the end of the 1800s, the Turkish Empire was called the sick man of Europe. Uh, you had Abdul Hamid III, or, or the second rather. And he um, had uh, uh, what his empire is falling apart the Greeks are breaking away and having their independence, uh, different areas. Egypt wants to break away. There's a civil war, Libya, uh, Bulgaria, Albania, Romania, all these countries are breaking away and France and Germany and England are wanting to take pieces of the Ottoman empire. The Armenians, they want to break away too. And the, the Sultan Abdul Hamid II, uh, rallies and kills a hundred thousand Armenians saying, I'm not gonna let you break away. And, um, but uh, then you have uh, World War One. So Germany industrializes it with military hardware and cannons and tanks, but it has no gas. And so the uh, Berlin Baghdad Railroad is made and Kaiser Wilhelm II makes a treaty with Abdul Hamid II. And so you have the Ottoman German Alliance. And Britain industrializes. Winston Churchill changes the British Navy from coal to oil, but the Brits don't have any oil wells. And so in 1908, Britain made an alliance with Iran or Persia and started the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company in 1908. Uh, You know it better as BP. Mm -hmm. And so when World War I takes place in Europe, you got Germany and England and France fighting, but you got the same fighting going on in the Middle East after the war's over they redraw the map of europe and they redraw the map of the middle east the ottoman empire which uh, as you mentioned had been from 1517 uh, all the way up to 1917 um the ottoman empire is now gone and it was a blow to the gut of of islam very similar to when the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, um, the Japanese felt like not only did their emperor let them down, their, their religion let them down, their Shinto religion. And so they were open to Western ideas and Western culture. And and so after World War One, you had um, a, a westernizing uh, movement taking place. Um, and... Um, with modernists and uh, uh but i have to throw in an important piece of the puzzle here britain during the war was running short on explosives and a uh jew from russia named Chaim Wiseman, and remember the fiddler on the roof movie mm-hmm. yeah, our chasing out the jews well some of them went to england and Chaim weisman was one of those he's a chemist and he uh, finds a uh, ethanol, butanol, acetone uh, f- fermentation process. Uh, and this they turned breweries into making acetone. And so now the British have more than enough explosives because they were running short. And after the war, they want to thank him and make him a sir or a knight. And he said, I would really like a homeland for my people. And and they said, where? And he goes, well, Israel. And so the, the British say, well, guess what? We just got control of all this land after World War One, And uh, we're talking Egypt, uh, the British uh, controlled that, uh, and then the, what is called the British Mandate or Palestine, and then all of Iraq, and then the French uh, took Syria and out of that carved out Lebanon. And, um, and so they gave the Jews the land that fulfilled the boundaries that God had given Moses And they had never been fulfilled up until David. And then they had not been fulfilled up until uh, this time. And, um, And so now we get into the particulars. Somebody threw a monkey wrench in the work. His name was Lawrence of Arabia. He was a lieutenant stationed in Cairo for the British. He sent on a reconnaissance assignment to meet with the Arabs, most mostly the the uh, Sharif of Mecca, and see if the Arabs would be willing to help the British defeat the Turks. So. There's different kinds of Muslims. We got the Turkish Muslims, but now we have the Arab Muslims. And so Lawrence of Arabia, rather than just reporting back, takes it upon himself to promise the Arabs that if they help the British defeat the Turks, they will get all the land to the Middle East. And in his book, Pillars of Wisdom, 1922, Lawrence of Arabia admitted he lied to them. He said, had I been an honest advisor to the Arabs, I would have advised them to go home and not risk their lives fighting for such stuff. I risked the fraud on my conviction that Arab help was necessary to our cheap and speedy victory. And better we win and break our word than lose for being a successful trickster. And to prevent this unpleasantness arising, I began in my reports to conceal the true stories of things. And so lo and behold, the British win. They give all this land to the Jews and the Arabs are like, we thought we were going to get the land. Mm -hmm. and so the british like okay great so they take iraq that they had gotten from the ottoman empire and they take the Sharif of mecca's son fasil and they make him king of iraq and they think well this ought to appease him but he thought he should get syria too but france had control of syria and so france sends in an army and chases out fasil and now There's about to be another war breaking out, and Winston Churchill pulls a fast one. He decides to take two thirds of the land they had given the Jews and create another brand new country and call it Jordan, and take Fazl's brother, another one of the sons of the Sharif of Mecca, his name is Abdullah, and make him king of Jordan. And so now you have Israel's land is two-thirds of it is cut. And um, and so, but the, the, the Jews are at least happy that they have that amount. And so the British, uh, they flip-flop and in 1922 begin to issue the white papers limiting the Jewish immigration into the Holy Land. So where before they were encouraging it, now they're limiting it. And then the British flip-flop on the Sharif of Mecca. Uh, he, he, they um, Decide he's not complying with their wishes, and so they pull back and let the Saud family take over Arabia in 1924. This is a big deal because the Sauds are Wahhabi. Wahhabi are violent Muslims. Every terrorist group traces itself back to Wahhabi. The Sharif had been a modernist. He was like, okay, Mecca is here. Muslims from around the country are coming on pilgrimage from Indonesia all over and, and let's just get along. And so he was a get along type of guy. And but... The Saudis were uh, brutal. And even Lawrence of Arabia calls Wahhabism a Muslim heresy. Uh, Everything was puritanical. Everything was forcibly pious. And and so uh, William McCant with the Brookings Institute says the Saudis view Islam as a small group of true believers and then everyone else Muslim and non-Muslim. So the Wahhabis are willing to. To be, they're just as happy killing a moderate Muslim as they are to kill an infidel, and so, um, and so now you have Saudi Arabia, and the Sharif of Mecca is kicked out. He dies in Cyprus. When he's buried, they bury him on the Temple Mount. Because Abdullah, King of Jordan, uh, for a while controls the Temple Mount. And, um, well, the Wahhabis. They're still a desert group until 1938 Standard Oil Company discovers oil in Saudi Arabia. And in one generation, Arabia goes from the poorest Muslim country to the richest Muslim country. And now they have billions of dollars to do what? Export Wahhabism. And then World War II starts. And you have the Mufti of Jerusalem uh who had um fled from syria and went down to jerusalem and he found his way to be one of the muslim leaders uh he meets with hitler and they confirm their hatred of the jews and after and he helps raise an entire bosnian panzer division and an arab legion of muslims to fight alongside of hitler and uh after the war the mufti of jerusalem flees to egypt And uh, so he won't be prosecuted as a war criminal. And there he meets the Muslim Brotherhood. And this is another chapter that's important, the Muslim Brotherhood, who are they? Well, the British control the Suez Canal.
1: Hold the thought, Bill, because we're coming up to a break. You can see how all this is strung together, ladies and gentlemen, that uh, one little step leads to another step. I mean, the Brits wanted to give Israel the land that was basically promised to Moses and Joshua and Abraham and then a lot of politics got involved oil was discovered and well we're going to pick it up right on the other side of the break we're talking to the great bill federer americanminute.com you need to sign up for his email Uh, you'll get great stuff like this almost every day we're back in just two minutes for i don't have enough faith to be an atheist don't go anywhere Happy New Year, ladies and gentlemen, the first show of 2024. We're tackling a big subject, the history of modern day Israel with my guest, Bill Federer. We've been talking about ancient Israel. Then we fast forwarded to modern day Israel. How did Israel come to be in 1948? And uh, Bill was just explaining to us how there were a bunch of politics going on after Uh, World War I, certain uh, people were placed in positions of authority around the Middle East. The Middle East was divided up. Although Israel was supposed to get a lot of land, it kept getting chipped away by different political uh, considerations. And Bill, just before the break, you were talking about about the fact that uh, Saudi Arabia was given Uh, To a Saud who followed Wahhabism. Let me just drill down on Wahhabism for just a second. Um, How old is this ideology of Wahhabism? Do they say that, look, we're just following the Quran and we're following Muhammad and anybody who's not a, a Muslim, our kind of Muslim must die. So that would include moderate Muslims. It would include Christians, Jews. Is that where this comes from?
0: Right. Uh, The first big instance of this was after the Muhammad and the rightly guided caliphs and they conquered North Africa, they conquered Spain, they conquered the Holy Land. um, They had a golden age of Islam where they stopped conquering for a little while. And they had uh, scientists and uh, Muslim leaders who read the Greek classics, uh, Al-Farabi and Avicenna and uh, Averroes, and they studied astronomy. And 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 in if you were to take a snapshot of the world, you would have thought, well, the, the Muslims are about to experience the Renaissance, the rediscovery mm-hmm. of Greek classics in the year, like, what, 10, 1074, around that time. They all get slapped down by a Muslim leader named uh, Ghazali. And he said, stop reading Greek stuff. He says, don't even read Greek geometry, because if you study geometry, you could get into Greek philosophy and then you could get pulled away from Islam. And so he shut the Islamic mind and said, only read the Quran. Well, in the meantime, you have Thomas Aquinas in Europe saying, Hey, you can read Greek stuff. Just eat the hay, spit out the sticks, right? Even a pagan can be right every now and then. And so, um, and so Europe experienced the Renaissance, not the Islamic world. And, and so this idea of wanting to reform it, make it more moderate, it always tends to get slapped down. By uh, Ghazalis and the Mujahideen, renewers of the faith. But after World War I, the Ottoman world, um, I mean, the, the empire was gone. And you had leaders like Ataturk in Turkey, and he wanted a secular state. Ataturk said he is a weak ruler who needs religion to uphold his government. Even before accepting the religion of the Arabs, the Turks were a great nation. Mohammedanism was based on Arab nationalism above all nationalities. He said the purpose of the religion founded by Mohammed over all nations was to drag them into Arab politics. It might have suited tribes in the deserts, no good for a modern progressive state. He outlaws the Fezzes and the Burkas. He's the first one to have women be taught. He meets with the king of Afghanistan, and he wants to bring uh, reforms and let women be taught in Afghanistan. He meets with the Shah uh, in Iran, and he wants to bring reforms into Iran and make it more Western. Um, he's meeting with uh, the Egyptian leaders. And and so Ataturk sort of pioneering this, let's cut ties with our fundamentalist past. And look, the world is Western. Let's get educated. Women have to be equal. and, and um, But then in 1928, the Muslim Brotherhood has started. And uh, they were six employees in the Suez Canal Company. So the French built the Suez Canal. And then the British took it over in 1882. And they protected it during World War One. And in 1928, these six employees, with, led by Albana, start the Muslim Brotherhood. And the Muslim Brotherhood said, the Quran is our constitution. Jihad is the way. Death for the sake of Allah is the highest of our aspirations. And they come up with a two-step plan and it's based on the two cities Muhammad lived in. Mecca, Muhammad was a religious leader Medina, Muhammad transitions to becoming a political and military leader and so the Muslim Brotherhood invented the two-step plan of infiltrate countries pretending you're just a religious Muslim and then when the signal's given boom, you become a political militant Muslim and so they began to infiltrate all these countries. Remember Abdullah the King of Jordan? Uh, Well in 1931 or or so he's there on the Temple Mount. He's a moderate Muslim. The Palestinian terrorists assassinate him. The ones connected with the mufti of jerusalem and the muslim brotherhood and um and so they're doing these there's an assassination attempt on ataturk and and they do they overthrow the the king of afghanistan and and they're they're doing all of this subversive type of stuff where they'll come into a country as immigrants and then they'll organize and then when your your guard is down then they do their violence and take over the country and so egypt uh, they had um, uh, skip past Gamal Nasser, but then you got Anwar Sadat, and he's a, a moderate Muslim. He actually makes a treaty with Menachem Begin, the prime minister of Israel. They both get the Nobel Peace Prize, and, and it's all wonderful until the Muslim Brotherhood had infiltrated the Egyptian military. Could you imagine Muslims infiltrating the military? And so they're having a parade, and uh, Anwar Sadat's there in the bandstands, the army's going by. All of a sudden, the army stops. And they turn, they face the bandstands, they lower their machine guns and they fill them full of lead. They kill their own president, and Mubarak falls off and and survives, and Mubarak's the leader. But these these Muslim leaders are now having to walk a tightrope. They want to be more westernized, but if they get too westernized, they're going to face assassination attempts by these Muslim Brotherhood people who infiltrate countries pretending like they're peaceful immigrants, only to wait until their their host country is weakened, and then they attack and overthrow them.
1: And ladies and gentlemen, that is why you will see no Muslim leader, uh, particularly the from the PLO or Hamas or any of these organizations, ever agree to anything with Israel because they fear for their own lives. There's going to be rep, there, there, there's there's going to be consequences for. Uh, compromising in any way with the infidel. And uh, that's where we're heading here. We're not going to get to to that completely in this program. We'll pick it up in the midweek podcast. But Bill, Wahhabism got a big boost when oil was discovered in Saudi Arabia, as you mentioned. That led also to uh, the PLO, didn't it? Tell us a little bit about the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization. Where did that come from?
0: Um, well, um well, the the one thing about the oil, um he had the Yalta conference with um Franklin Roosevelt and um Stalin and Winston Churchill. And that conference is when Franklin Roosevelt gave half of Europe to the communists. Thank you, FDR. On his way back, he he's on the boat called the USS Quincy, and he meets in the Suez Canal with the Saudi King, who slaughters a goat on deck. They barbecue for their lunch. And Supposedly, FDR wanted to ask his help in resettling the Jews in the Holy Land, and he blindsides FDR and says, Jews are terrible, terrible, terrible. And uh, and he brings up all the negative stuff. And then FDR writes a letter when he gets back to America in April of 1945, saying, As long as I'm president, the United States won't recognize Israel. A week later, FDR's dead. And that's when uh, Harry S. Truman becomes the president. And um, Harry S. Truman is, is friends with Israel. And uh, he had uh, was in World War I with a Jewish friend, Eddie Jacobson. They come back. They have a business together, a haberdashery in Kansas City, a men's clothing store. And then when Harry S. Truman is president, um, uh, he gets a phone call from Eddie Jacobson. Uh, the British had the, the British mandate, Palestine and, and Jordan, that area, from 1917 on and the British got tired of it and as soon as the United Nations was, was formed the, the uh, in 1948 you had the British saying okay, United Nations is here we're going to dump the British mandate throw it in the lap of the United Nations it's your problem now and we're going to make the date we're going to give up our control on May 15th, 1948 and so all of a sudden these Jews that had been quietly on their own coming, going over there uh, they're no longer going to be under the British mandate uh, they're going to be taken over and so uh, the United Nations is like not they're ignoring Israel. And that's when Harry S. Truman on his own said, I'm going to recognize Israel. And then uh, Russia did. They wonder why. And there, there were a lot of Russian immigrants. And the, the thought is Russia thought it could turn Israel socialist. Uh, they did not do that, thankfully. Um, but uh, and then so but immediately you had uh, the Arab nations attack Israel in 1948 the first Arab Israeli conflict. Um, and the, the peace treaty is negotiated by Ralph Bunch. He's the first African American to win the Nobel Peace Prize. And, uh, and so, but you still have this conflict going on. And then you have, um, Gamal Nasser, who's a secular leader in Egypt, but he still hates Israel. And so he grabs the Suez Canal from the British and blocks the Israeli ships, and uh, Israel fights back and gets control of the the Suez Canal and the Sinai Peninsula, and Eisenhower talks the Jews into giving up the Sinai Peninsula land for peace. If you give it up, you'll have peace. Well, they do. They don't have peace. And then you have Gamal Nasser uh, with the other Arab nations invading Israel again. It's called the 1967 Six-Day War. Uh, Israel miraculously survives, and this time they regain the Temple Mount, and uh, and then um, the 1972, the uh, Muslim Brotherhood-inspired terrorists uh, killed Jews at the 1972 Summer Olympics in Munich. And they're, they're planning all their terrorist attacks. And uh, then the 1973 war, the Arab countries again attack Israel. Israel survives. Um, and then Jimmy Carter's the one that does the Camp David Accords between Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat. But then Anwar Sadat is killed um, by his own people. But Anwar Sadat, I mean, he was he met with Billy Graham and Billy Graham praised him. He met with Matt mm. uh, Robertson, gave him an award Anwar Sadat was like, hey, we can finally have peace between the moderate Muslims in Israel. But he was assassinated by the Muslim Brotherhood people. And so that's the dilemma. You have uh, this ideology that keeps resurfacing. Now, it would go away if it wasn't the West that keeps coming to the rescue of the fundamentalists.
1: Well, that's what we need to talk about in the next show, Bill, because we're... we We're getting there. We can't quite get all the way there in this program. There's just so much to cover. The origin of the PLO, Hamas, all that. And a little bit more on the Palestinian people. What happened to them in 1948? We got to talk about that in the midweek podcast. For those of you that listen on the American Family Radio Network, you will not hear it broadcast on AFR. You need to go and find the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast. This coming Tuesday, we'll do part two of this show. Uh, So don't miss that program bill it's always a pleasure having you on you just i can just listen to you for hours and we're going to do another hour here coming tuesday ladies and gentlemen so tune in for that one and we will see you right there on the i don't have enough faith to be an atheist midweek podcast thanks so much ladies and gentlemen see you then